Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum tonight. Uh, Pergamum. Um, Heard this story the other day, thought I would start off with this. Uh, Winter was coming and a hunter went out into the forest to shoot a bear because he was cold and he wanted, a, he wanted to have a warm coat. Well, he walked through the woods, and lo and behold, he saw a bear, and he saw the bear coming to him, and he raised up his gun to take aim, and, and the bear said, Wait, 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 why do you want to shoot me? And he says, Because I'm cold. And the bear said, Well, I'm hungry. And he said, Maybe we can reach an agreement. You know where this is going, right? And so, in the end, the hunter was warm with the bear's fur, and the bear had eaten his dinner. Can I tell you, we always lose when we compromise with the world. We really do. And when you look at the church in Pergamum tonight, you will find out that compromise can be a very dangerous thing. They were faithful when it came to persecution but they had compromised when it came to false teaching, uh, false doctrine, and false teachers. And we're going to talk about the danger of compromise. Uh, Very quickly, uh, a little bit of a background on Pergamum. Uh, It was a city of great wealth and culture. Uh, The city possessed many great buildings. Among them was a library that contained 200,000 volumes. Now, can you imagine? I mean, that's a lot today, but that was a whole lot back then. It was the second uh, largest library at that time in the world, second to Alexandria and Egypt, so that's saying something. For almost two centuries, the city of Pergamum had been loyal to Rome. It was the headquarters for emperor worship in that region, the province of Asia, which is what we call modern-day Turkey. Um, According to one commentator, Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple for emperor worship. They were the first ones, proudly referring to itself as a temple warden for worship. And it became the leading center for this idolatrous practice in the province. And not only that, Pergamum was a center for the cult of Asclepius, uh, which is the god of healing. I may have said that name wrong, I'm sorry, but it's, it's a god of healing. And the symbol is a serpent, a serpent. And you see that today in the medical profession with, you know, you still see that snake symbol. Uh, that and the, um, the emperor worship may have contributed to Christ's view of the city as a center of satanic authority. Uh, and finally, also when it came to Pergamum, there was a cone-shaped hill behind the city, and it was a site of various pagan temples, including one for Zeus, who was considered father of the gods in Greek mythology. Uh, So when we read Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, and Christ says that I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, where Satan lives, now you have a little bit of an idea why uh, Jesus would refer to the city as the place where the devil's throne is. Okay, So let's look in Revelation 2, verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, that is a a throwback to the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, 
Uh, that was a, a piece of the vision. Christ appears and he has a double-edged sword. So that's, an, that's a reference to him. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death uh, among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lot there. In verse 12, Jesus identifies himself as the one with the sharp double-edged sword. And it's referenced again in verse 16 where he says, You need to repent or I will come and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, Christ, the picture here is Christ is standing there over the church as a judge because of sin, okay? If someone is standing near me and they have a sword, I really don't want to mess with them, do you? And uh, Christ has the authority. Uh, He has the sword. His word uh, is powerful. It cuts to the quick as... uh, as uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, that the Word of God separates, you know, like bone and marrow. It, it shows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, it's the sword of the Spirit. And so Christ is standing over the church as a judge because of their sin. And then He says, He commends them. He, he's going to correct them, but he, he does what psychologists do today. You start with a positive, and then you deal with a negative, and you try to end with a positive. And so here he begins with a positive, and he says, you know, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. That's not the best neighborhood, is it? But he says, you're holding on to my name. In other words, you're, you're faithful, okay? You're, you're holding on to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, who was one of them who died for the Lord Jesus Christ. Antipas was a faithful witness, and he was put to death among you where Satan lives, in your town, in your city, okay? One of, one of your members of, 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 of the church you go to. And so they knew Antipas. And so despite the death of Antipas, the church was faithful to the name of Christ. And that's the, that's the star in their crown right there. They were faithful. But then Jesus says those words in verse 14 but I have a few things against you. And at that point, he begins to talk about false teachers and false teaching. He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And um, this is where, isn't it neat how God's word is all interconnected? Because you read that and you go, well, who is Balaam? Well, you got to go all the way back to the book of Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible in the Old Testament. And there's a story about Balaam. And Balaam is literally a prophet for hire. Uh, The king of uh, Moab, King Balak, he knows that uh, 
God's people have come out of Egypt and they're trying to get to the promised land and they're coming his way and he don't want them to come through his land and he doesn't want anything good to happen to Israel because he feels threatened by them. And so he, he hires Balaam, this prophet, and he says, I'm going to pay you nicely, but I want you to pronounce a curse on them. Well, the uh, prophet Balaam was all too eager to say, oh, that's, I can do that. You know, I can, you just name your price. I can do that. But every time he tried to do that, when he opened up his mouth, guess what? Only blessing would come out. He blessed God's people rather than cursed God's people, which really is a connection all the way back to Genesis 12 when God called Abraham and I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. You remember that in Genesis 12 when God spoke uh, to Abraham and called him. Um, so after a couple times of that, that's not working. And finally, um, you know, you, you read that story and you're like, well, what's going on there? And then you read in, in uh, 2 Peter in the New Testament when Peter talks about false teachers today in the church he mentions Balaam. And that's when you realize, oh, wow, that really was a shady thing that Balaam did, you know? And so you realize that Balaam was a false teacher. Well, at first, when you look at the story on its surface, you think, well, Balaam failed because two or three times he, he went to a mountain overlooking a valley where he could see Israel, and he went to pronounce a curse on them. And every time he did... God intervened and he spoke blessing instead of curse. And so he couldn't do what the king had hired him to do. But then we find out in the end what really happened. And before I tell you that, let me just mention this as I was studying this. See, references made to Numbers 23 and 24. That's where you can find that story in the Old Testament where Balak sought to get Balaam to curse the children of Israel for worldly honor and gain. And the teachings of Balaam had brought dishonor upon Israel uh, because the Bible says that the doctrine of Balaam refers to it, that probably refers to an element in the church which was bringing dishonor upon the name of Christ. Uh, in other words, according to Herschel Hobbes, they were teaching compromise with pagan standards. Maybe it was emperor worship in order to escape persecution. Uh, we don't know. But during Israel's uh, wilderness wanderings, God had prevented the prophet Balaam from cursing the Israelites. So Balaam found another way to get the job done. We find out uh, in Numbers 31, verse 16, um, it says in reference to the Moabite women, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's community. In other words, this, this obscure verse, a few chapters after the story of Balaam in, in Numbers 23 and 24, that says, oh, by the way, here's what happened. And you find out, wow. You see, Balaam could not pronounce a curse on God's people. And he basically said, if you can't curse them, you can corrupt them. So he sent a message back to King Balak, and he says, here's what you can do. Take the women of your, of your country and go out and meet the men of Israel and invite them to join you in a feast of idolatry and in the revelry of immorality. And what will happen is Israel will compromise their standards with their God that protects them 
and then he will deal with them. And that's exactly what happened. And so the uh, Moabite women incited the men to come out and they participated in sexual immorality and idolatry. And that alienated Israel from the Lord. And as a result, Balaam lured God's people into a greater defeat than Moab could have done. And as a result, the Lord sent a plague against Israel. And in Numbers 25, we find out that 25,000 people died from that plague. And so that's the dangers of false teaching and false doctrine. Now you might say, well, that's an interesting story, uh, Brother Corey. We're in Revelation. You've already gone to the Old Testament again. So what's the, what's the link here? Well, here's the link. The link between this Old Testament story about Balaam and false teachers and the church here at Pergamum in Revelation 2 is to be, to be on watch and guard against these sinful practices. You see, the pagan feast that they held in Asia Minor in that day honored the emperor and other deities. And it featured indulgence in both idolatry and immorality. And the citizens were expected to participate. In particular, what may be thought of here are trade guild festivals involving celebration of patron deities through feast and sometimes immoral activities. And if you refuse to participate in these, it could result in economic uh, hardship and social ostracism. Talk about peer pressure. Therefore, there was a lot of pressure to compromise. And the point is, just as Israel was influenced to compromise with Moabites, spiritually speaking, it's also true for the believers in the church in Pergamum. And so here he says, <clears throat> he, he starts with that story about Balaam and Balak and how Balaam led Israel to sin through eating meat offered a sacrifice to idols there in verse 14 and to commit sexual immorality. He begins with that that they know from the Old Testament and then he leaps forward and says, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we really don't know much about the Nicolaitans. Um, they're unknown. Their activities in the seven uh, churches draw allusions to false teachers from the Old Testament. We know that they tempt the churches into a theological and moral compromise with paganism, but we just really don't know a lot. Some people try to make a lot out of their names. Uh, and what I mean by that, uh, the Nicolaitans come from the term Nicholas, which means one who overcomes the people. And Balaam's name means one who consumes or rules over the people. All I know is it appears here that Jesus and John are linking what the Nicolaitans are doing to the same thing that Balaam did. It's leading people astray, leading them into idolatrous, idolatrous practices and immorality. And that's what's so dangerous about that. I mean, think about it. Even in our day, people uh, think, okay, I can come to church, I can read my Bible, and I can pray, and then I can walk out those doors, and I can live my life however I want to. That's dangerous, isn't it? That's the same kind of uh, teaching that they were probably facing today. It's this idea of compromise. I'll do certain things, and then I can do whatever I want over here, 
and you can't find that, uh, you know, you can't find that taught in the Bible. And that's why in verse 16, it all comes to a head. Now that Jesus has commended them for being faithful to his name and not denying their faith, even in the midst of persecution, and yet he has a few things against them. They're holding to false teaching, okay? They're, they're letting uh, <clears throat> false ideas, false teaching uh, creep into the church, which can, you know, lead people astray. And so the duty, the call to action in verse 16, repent. And I know I mentioned this a, a week or two ago. Uh, God's word is always repent when it comes to sin, okay? If we see a kid about to touch a hot stove, we're going to say, stop it. Don't do that. You're going to get burned, right? Uh, God's word when it comes to sin is always repent, which means, you know, stop, you know, change your mind and turn around. And uh, that's what we do when we repent. We stop what we're doing. We have a change of, of mind that leads to a change of direction. And so he says, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so we know here that um, Christ can come back at any time, but when you read these uh, letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, keep in mind that the context is in Revelation 1, Christ is walking among the candles, the candlesticks, right? And those are the churches. And so Christ is actively walking among the churches. He's intimately aware uh, of what's going on in his church. That's why he can say, I know where you live and I know your works and all of these things. And there are times that he intervenes in the life of the church to deal with things that need to be dealt with. And so when he says here in uh, verse 16, I will come to you quickly. Uh, that's not necessarily referring to, you know, his future, you know, return. He's talking about, listen, if you don't repent of the sin, I'm going to come quickly and deal with this issue. We know that in the, in the uh, church at Corinth, we know that they had issues with idolatry and immorality. We also knew, know that uh, at the church in Corinth, they didn't observe the Lord's Supper properly. And as a result, there were some that got sick and some even died. Uh, you can point to that to say there's an example of God saying, look, if you have an issue and I point it out and you don't deal with it, then I'm going to come and I'm going to intervene. I'm going to do something. And so God can do that. Uh, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, remember when each one came, into, uh, came to the apostles and they lied not only to Peter, but they lied to God. As, as Actually, I think the way Peter said it, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they died the same day a husband and a wife did. And, and great fear uh, 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 of God fell upon you know, people in the area, and particularly the church. So God has a way of dealing with, with stuff that happens in the church, and that's what that's alluding to there, where I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Um, the... The action here is to repent or face the one who holds the sword. And I don't know about you, but I, I would rather repent than face the Lord with the sword. And then, in each one of these seven letters to the seven churches, it always ends with an appeal. Let anyone who, is, who has ears to hear, 
listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and I will say this, a little spoiler alert, I guess, but once we finish going through these seven churches, I'll probably take one week to just look back at all seven as a whole unit because he's saying something individually to each one of these churches, but he's also saying something collective to all of the churches. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, and we'll get to that in time. But to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so here we're told that if we hear what God is saying and we repent and we respond in faithful obedience to Him, then there's three things we have to look forward to. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now the hidden manna, according to uh, Michael Kukendall, uh, he says the hidden manna, represents eternal, intimate fellowship with Christ that a victorious believer experiences now and, and forever. In other words, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, uh, the promise is now available, not only to those at Pergamum, but anyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus, because Jesus said He is the what? The bread of life, okay, that came down from heaven to give His life. Okay, for us. He's the bread of life. He is the real manna. So the hidden manna represents God's supernatural provision that stands in contrast to the idol food that they would have been tempted to partake of at these pagan feasts. So it's quite a contrast. Here they are. They're being led into immorality and idolatry. And you know, everybody gets together and they're honoring the emperor and they're doing this and they're doing that and everybody kind of wants to go along and get along, right? But, but we can't compromise when it comes to our faith in Christ. And so this meat sacrifice to idols and this committing sexual immorality, um, he is contrasting that with the true bread of life in Jesus, the hidden manna, and this promise will be fulfilled at the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is at the end of Revelation. Um, the white stone, we're, we're, t we're told about a white stone. Um, again, one commentator says the white stone is John's most elusive symbol. Uh, there's numerous possibilities, but in all likelihood, it probably symbolizes the overcomer, admission and membership into fellowship with God and Christ. In other words, the best option appears to be that of a ticket of admittance uh, or membership given to an overcomer who now comes into fellowship with the Lord and eats the hidden manna at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then not only do we have a white stone, but we have a new name. And the new name refers to you know, being in the presence of God. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 4, at the very end of the book, it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And so to be given a new name was an indication of a new status. We have received this name and it represents the final reward of where we will be with him someday. We will know him as we are known and we will be with him forever. And so it's interesting to me that the promise of a new name is mentioned to two different churches. This one, Pergamum. And in the uh, later on, is it in uh, 
let me see if it's in chapter 3. Yeah, and then later on in chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia. These two churches are the ones mentioned as being loyal to Christ's name. Okay, both of those letters, they are loyal to Christ's name, and so therefore they get a new name. And I think that's kind of cool with that, that wordplay, that contrast there. So, <clears throat> bottom line, uh, let's kind of simplify this for a minute. Here's the church at Pergamum. And the character of Christ is a judge and a warrior against sin. He's got his sword drawn, okay? There's no compromise. And uh, the strength of the church is they've, they've held fast to the name of Christ, even in the midst of persecution, even when one of their own, you know, was uh, lost their life because of Christ, Antipas. They still stood their ground and they were faithful to not deny their faith in Jesus. And yet the problem in the church is false teaching. And false teaching is, is real. Um, the reason why false teaching is always dangerous, it's not because, it's not like taking a test at school where, oh man, I got my math problem wrong. You know, false teaching is dangerous because it takes you away from the truth that's in Jesus. And once you get away from the truth that's in Jesus, then you know, you're, you're not on solid ground, you're on shaky ground. And false doctrine will always take you in the wrong direction. And so their duty is to repent. And their promise is to have spiritual significance with a new name, a white stone, and a hidden manna. So let me try to bring this home. Uh, I found this great quote that I want to read uh, that really emphasizes verse 14. Uh, what Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, had done to be a stumbling block to the Israelites. And it's mentioned there in verse 14, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That is a prevalent thing in the New Testament, in the New Testament churches. Matter of fact, as I mentioned earlier, the church at Corinth, they dealt with that big time. Here's a quote. Confusion regarding food sacrificed to idols and appropriate sexual conduct were widespread among early Christians who converted from paganism, okay, from paganism. The church at Corinth, across the sea from the province of Asia, needed instruction on sexual issues and on food offered to idols. And although the food having been offered to idols doesn't defile it, okay, the social context could turn the innocent act of eating into serious sin. Why? Because it either sent mixed signals or you could share in the table of demons, which is what Paul said in um, 1 Corinthians 10. So with respect to meat offered to idols, Paul's counsel and command was this, flee idolatry. That's in, that's in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians 10, 14. Flee idolatry. And then four chapters previous in the same letter, he also commanded them, flee immorality. In other words, dabbling with idolatry or immorality denies that we belong to Jesus and our jealous husband of whom we are his bride tolerates no rivals. And so that's why you see the response by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he wants us to be fully committed to Him with no compromise. And so 
the church at Pergamum was in danger of compromising um, the faith because of false teaching. And so here's, let me just lay it out for you real quick tonight. The world offers the church two options. And the more I've been studying this since we started Revelation, the more I see this. The world offers the church two options. Seduction or persecution. Now let me explain those for a minute. Seduction is when the world says, hey, don't you want to be like us? You remember what Jesus said? Broad is the path to destruction. Narrow is the way to life and few find it. Okay, the world wants us to go along with them. Okay, they look at us and go, all oh, your fuddy-duds, your holy rollers, you know, your Bible thumpers, you, you know, you're this, you're that. And they want us to bend toward them. You know, you know get, get with the um, modern times and so on and so forth. The world tries to seduce the church, to compromise its standards, to just lower things down a little bit and all those things. That's a big temptation. However... If the church is faithful to God and His Word and refuses to compromise and covers their ears when the call of seduction comes, then the other part of it kicks in, and that's persecution. Persecution. Let me, let me share a Bible passage with you that hopefully will explain it better than I can say it right now. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to read the first five verses. Notice what Peter says here about our former way of life and the life we live now because we know Jesus. Just listen to these words. Peter says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now look at that verse 4 for a minute. Here are the people of the world, and we were just like them, doing the same things until we got saved and Christ came in our life and changed us. Okay, And it says they're surprised that you don't join them doing the same old things you used to do. No, I'm a Christian now. I don't do that anymore. Oh! You're one of those, huh? And then they slander you. You see how quick that turned? On one hand, the world wants to seduce you. Come along and join us. Just, just follow us. Just do what we do. Don't, don't, don't get too preachy, you know? Don't, don't act like that. Just come do what we do. You ain't no better than we are. And let's just go on and do our thing. And then the minute you draw a line and say, I can't do it. You know, the Lord, I just don't have peace about it. You know, I'm a Christian now. I want to follow God. I want to obey His Word. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be better than anybody, but I just can't do it. Oh, well, and then they slander you. So on one hand, the world tries to seduce you. And when that doesn't work, when you don't 
play that way, when you refuse to compromise God's standards, what happens? They persecute you. Pick your poison. There's only two things the world offers the church. Either seduction, fall in line and do what we do, or persecution. We'll ostracize you, we'll slander you because you think you're better than we are. I tell you what, the more I think about that and the more I look at Revelation and everything that's fixing to come as we go through Revelation, there is no neutral ground, y'all. No wonder James, the Lord's brother, said that if you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Think about that. I mean, there is no neutral ground between the world and God. There are no fence straddlers. You have to make a choice. And you will make a choice. Whether you realize it or not, there's no sitting on the fence. And so my challenge to you tonight is don't compromise with the world. Remain faithful to Jesus, okay? Uh, I know I said this last week. I've been thinking of Charles Stanley here a lot lately. He's finished 50 years of ministry at First Baptist Atlanta. And uh, one of his last comments was, he's, gonna, he's not going to retire. I mean, he's no longer the pastor of First Baptist Atlanta, but he's not going to retire. He's still going to do what God's enabled him to do and he says, I'm just going to do what I've told y'all to do for 50 years. I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to leave the consequences to him. And that is so true. And that's what we need to learn from this um, church in Pergamum. We've got to learn to obey God and leave the consequences to him. Uh, they were, I commend the church at Pergamum, they were willing to stand up for Christ. They did not deny the name of Christ, even when they saw one of their own killed because of his faith in Christ. But yet, while they were guarding the front door, they were expecting persecution and they were faithful in the midst of it. Nobody guarded the back door and they began to compromise on certain truths and they began to allow, allow certain lies from the enemy and they began to let down their guard and they began to do things that really aren't in line with sound doctrine like idolatry, and then immorality. And Christ says, we can't have that. You have to repent. So my challenge tonight is this. Will you remain faithful to the Lord when you're faced with the threat of persecution or the compromise of false teaching? Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us as we go through the book of Revelation. I pray tonight, Lord, that we would be faithful to your name, no matter what the cost or the consequence. And Lord, help us to be on guard when it comes to living according to your word and obeying your truth. Lord, have your will and your way in each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.